Well, I hope in many ways that you were saddened uh, as you saw events unfold on Wednesday. The loss of life and injury and the blind hatred that we have seen is yet another reminder that we do live in a broken and a very fragile world. Christians, we should weep at such atrocities. The shattered hope of a handful of families was the immediate tragic result, but the aim, of course, was much wider, wasn't it? The hope of a nation, the way of life, was in the crosshairs. And the poignancy of the Houses of Parliament finding itself under attack is clear, isn't it, to all of us? Because in this country there's no place uh, that represents more obviously the freedoms that we enjoy. The Houses of Parliament are that visible reminder of the democracy that we live in on these shores, the centre of our nation's way of life. And what we have and what we enjoy, who we are as a nation, has come under attack. And rightly, the Prime Minister has spoken out defiantly. Some commentators have even mocked uh, this small attempt to chip away at our nation. These are good and appropriate responses to such barbaric acts. But over time, those immediate responses will subside and the nation will probably, in its very quintessentially British way, kind of keep calm and carry on and probably have a mug to hold at the same time. But I want to ask, is that a good thing? In some ways, yes. And we we must be resilient and defiant. But in so doing, are we glossing over perhaps some of the bigger issues? I'm reading, uh, I nearly finished this uh, fascinating book by Sir Roger Scruton at the moment. uh, And um, in it, he's a philosopher, by the way. His observations of society are very insightful at times. This is his latest book. It's natally titled The Uses of Pessimism. It's a really happy read. Um, and the danger of false hope. And in it, he he shows historically how dangerous it is to ignore the fragility of things like democracy and the inclinations of humanity, who inevitably will perpetrate acts of violence, as we've seen this week. I don't agree with all he says in this book, but he advocates uh, what I think is rather sensible, a, a realistic pessimism. As we view the world around us, I think that's probably wise, isn't it? Because, you see, democracy is a wonderful thing that we live in. It is a good thing, but it is not the ultimate answer or solution to Wednesday. Education and tolerance, which have been spoken of a lot in the news, haven't they, over the last few days, they're wonderful and they're good things, but they're not the ultimate answer and solution to Wednesday. The British people, we are wonderful aren't we? Uh, and very, we're, we're resilient, we're kind of, we'll get on with things. Uh, very good, but we're not the ultimate answer to the solution to Wednesday. We must not be blindly optimistic, thinking that the mechanisms of government or the resilience of a nation are the solution or the answer. Nothing will ultimately stop this happening again and again and again and again. And therefore, Roger Scruton, I think, is right. A healthy portion of pessimism about the society we live in and the humanity as a whole is probably what our nation needs right now. A bit of a reality check. Because good government can only provide a modicum of hope, never the ultimate hope that we long for. 
And for so many in our country, their future is defined by just much of the same as they look for the next few years ahead. And they can either blindly kind of carry on sticking their head in the sand or they can sit in a pessimistic stupor. But if life is all we have now, then hope is always going to be limited, isn't it? Because our futures are always determined by, uh, sorry, but because our futures will always determine how we live, how we think, how we act, what hope we have. But what? What if today, what if tomorrow at work was defined by a greater future? One that reached beyond the grave? <coughs> What if there was more beyond our final breath? What if uh, our horizon reached into eternity, not just the 70, 80 years we have in this life? And that we know, many of us, is the liberating truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian here today, you know that your horizon reaches beyond the grave. And that brings hope, doesn't it? Now. Joy. Now. Purpose. Now. Christians, we know nothing. now is nothing in comparison to what will be. Now is just a shadow, a, a glimmer of the eternity to come, which ought to transform today, tomorrow, and all the days that we breathe on this earth. Oh, we'll rightly be pessimistic about what we see around us, but quite the opposite should be true as our eternal future comes into our gaze. Oh, the reality now can be tough, can't it? Paul spoke, do you remember last week, of our inevitable wasting away in these bodies, the afflictions that we know in this life as a result of making the gospel known, which was his issue, but also just living in this world, a groaning world, where things like Wednesday happen. Paul spoke of our afflictions preparing for us that eternal weight of glory. Do you remember that? That disproportionately greater weight to the afflictions that we now know. So you see, Paul's now is defined by his eternal then. That wonderful future, eternal glory. And I wonder, as you've been looking through these passages, and this passage this week as well, I wonder, is that true for you? Does the future glory that awaits define your life now? Does it transform your thinking your longings now? Does it, does it transform the way that you do your work now? It probably doesn't, it does it, if you, if you don't understand it fully and also if you don't dwell on it very much at all. And Paul in our passage today is, is simply trying to show us the weightiness of that eternal glory and its inevitability for those who trust in Jesus. And that takes us to our first point. Have a look at it on your sheets there. Looking at verses 1 to 5. He's really showing us what life as a Christian now looks like. And he shows us this this tension. He says, it's living now with groans, longing for a glory to come. Living now with groans, longing for the glory to come. Just flip back one verse, the end of chapter 4. And you'll see, you remember that instruction of Paul. Uh, at the end there, he, look at it, it says, he asks us to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen 
is eternal. You see, we do so because he's saying life now is so inferior to what will be. And verse 1 makes this point using the image or the metaphor of a building. So he's saying, look, end of chapter 4, we fix our eyes on on what is unseen. Look at it, the connected word for at the beginning of chapter 5. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. See what he's doing here? He's contrasting two buildings here. One is temporary, the tent. One is a picture of permanence, the house in heaven. One is destroyed and one is eternal. It's good to remember here that Paul was, of course, an itinerant tape maker. He knows his tents better than any of us do. He didn't have those pop-up things. He knows his tents properly. He knows both their strengths and he knows their limitations. And therefore he takes this image of the tent to depict the human body now. We're temporary. One day we will die. Life now is just a few years with some joys, of course. But it's also littered with affliction. And Paul's point is that life now is totally inferior to life eternal. In glory. Both in terms of quality and quantity as well. And Paul is surely alluding to the sort of tabernacle uh, and temple of the, the that, remember the, in the old covenant, the, the place of where God uh, in his presence dwelt amongst his people. Uh, firstly, in the tabernacle, which was a temporary, it was a kind of building, it was moved around. Uh, whereas the temple later came and it was much more substantial, it had a greater permanence amongst the people. And Paul is simply using this image to grow expectation. For all the glory that is to come. We must see, you see, life now in right perspective. That is in comparison to the weightiness, the grandeur, to the permanence of what is to come. The moment we take our last breath, if we know Jesus Christ as Lord in our lives, we will shift from this fragile, temporary body that is blown about in the wind. Think of tents. And we will shift to our unshakable, beautiful, eternal bodies. And that is why we are called to fix our eyes on eternity, what is unseen, because it helps us to live life now, to see life as it is now. Life is totally inferior in comparison to the eternity to come. And where I think we so often go wrong is this. I think it is when we place a weight of expectation on our lives now that it can never be expected to bear. When we daydream of a, a life of ease, of, of you know, just so much leisure and beautiful relationships kind of everywhere in our lives, all as we might imagine and daydream about, or, you know, total peace in our lives, no terror threats and so on, we're imagining a, a reality and placing an expectation on this tent on our lives now, that it was never promised to be like. It was never designed to withstand that. So when the storms of life come through, come sweeping through our lives, what happens? We just get squashed, don't we? We begin to think, oh, that's a bit unfair. I wasn't expecting that. We should have been. When the relationship doesn't happen, when the afflictions come, when the mess of life comes through, ripping through, what happens? We get crushed by these things. 
But the body is just a temporary tent. Rather, we're to fix our eyes and our expectations on that, that permanent, heavenly, glorious, eternal house of heaven where all our desires and all our expectations will be fulfilled. And we're to see, uh, as you look in the text there, you'll see this is a gift from God. It is from God, given through the provision of his son, the Lord Jesus, of course. And it, likewise, it says it's not built by human hands. It's, there's nothing that you or I have deserved or, or earned to merit this at all. Do you see how Paul is remoulding our expectations in this life? How he's giving us a healthy perspective of life now in comparison to life eternal? Look at the following verses. Paul continues his theme, now using a, a different image. He uses three very kind of normal, simple images uh, to, to make his point here. The second is the use of clothing. Look at verse 2. Meanwhile, we grow longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Again, we see Paul's longing here for heaven. His present groaning in this life is exactly the same as the groaning mentioned in Romans 8, three times there. It's a groaning in anticipation. This isn't kind of the groaning of a kind of a bitter grumbling kind of groaning. It's not that kind of groaning here. It's a type of groaning that I hear when I get a tub of ice cream out of the freezer. And it's usually something like this. It goes, oh, how long is it going to take before it defrosts? Please, come on, give me some ice cream quickly. That's the kind of groaning we hear. It's a kind of eager anticipation kind of groaning. It's a kind of groaning you hear on Christmas Day morning. Do we have to wait for Grandad to open up presents? Oh, come on, we want to open up presents now, please. Oh, I don't want to wait for them. Oh, presents, presents. It's eager anticipation. It's one that, uh, scholar, I love this. He just it was, it was on your tiptoes groaning. Can't wait. It's excited anticipation groaning. Paul groans, you see, because he can't wait to get to the eternal glory to come. To be with his Lord. He isn't looking for ways to get there quicker. He isn't dismissive of his life now. He understands the weight and the majesty of the glory to come. And he just can't wait. It's so wonderful. He can't wait, as he says, wonderfully, to be clothed. It's a beautiful picture of being completely covered in his heavenly dwelling. It's a wonderful picture of his completeness, perfection, being glorified for eternity. But Paul groans because, like us, he, is, he lives what we sometimes describe as between times. That is, he lives between the time in the past when Christ died and rose again, securing our place in heaven if we trust him. But we wait for a future time when Christ will return and take us to our heavenly dwelling. We live between these two times, groaning with anticipation, longing to be with Jesus. Now, verse 3 is interesting. It adds to the anticipation and expectation. Look what it says. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. And Paul is saying there is, if we die now, if I die today, before Christ returns on that final day, yes, we will be with God in glory. But not in our final clothed bodies. It is only when Christ comes at the end of the ages and creation is renewed and restored, then uh, we will know a bodily resurrection, clothed in our heavenly dwelling. 
There's all sorts of controversy over that verse and what it's kind of pointing to, but that's where I've kind of stabbed for. Uh, we can ask questions about that later if you want. But verse 4, just, just turn to that because it's a nice repeat. It's kind of summary of what he said so far. Look at verse 4. For while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. It's a lovely phrase, that isn't it? That's swallowed up by life. Uh, uh, it's most probably an allusion to Isaiah, chapter 25, verse 80, if you want to look at it later, which is, kind of points to a, a completion in our redemption, a final working. And that is what Paul groans and longs for. Life now is hard for him, maybe hard for you right now. But he groans with anticipation, longing to be clothed in his heavenly dwelling. Because that is the end of time and the beginning of eternity. The end of affliction and the beginning of eternal perfection. As you wake tomorrow, I wonder if your eyes will still be fixed on your heavenly dwelling. Will you be longing and groaning for your eternal glory? Or will your eyes be fixed on your burgeoning inbox as the the phone vibrates or sort of pings various things to you? Or will you be fixed on your, the ever-increasing pile of life admin you have to get through when you get home from work or whatever it is? It's so easy, isn't it, for our gaze to shift? Do you find that? It's not that we should ignore life now. You need to go through your emails so you can get your life in order. I'm not saying to dismiss any of that, but don't ignore that that God-given groaning. It is a gift from God. And it will help us keep life now in perspective. Verse 5, I think, uh, helps us see that we're not alone as we wait and long for the glory to come. Look at verse 5. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. That, That guaranteeing word is the same word used of an engagement ring. Uh, When someone becomes a Christian, we put our faith in the past and future work of Christ. But in the present, we are wonderfully given a deposit, a down payment, a, a, a guarantee through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here we see it's a guarantee of glory to come. But how do you know that that is true? It's easy to say, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I've got the Spirit in me. Not sure. How can you know that is true? Well, the work of the Spirit is that transforming work we saw last week as we're prepared for glory. The Spirit works through the Word, the Bible, and makes us more like Christ as we honour Him. Uh, We see His work as we become more like Jesus. Which is a foreshadowing of that final and ultimate transformation we will know when we meet Jesus face to face. When you are struggling, though, When life feels just overwhelming, incredibly weighty, when you sit on your bed and your hands are in your head and you're just sat there in utter despair, life hasn't worked out as you would have imagined, as you dreamt. Where do you go? What do you do? What we've seen here is this, we groan. But we groan with anticipation. For that eternal house 
longing to be clothed in the glory to come. But we have a responsibility. We have to fix our eyes on that eternal weightiness, that disproportionate weight of glory to come. It puts what we're going through now into perspective. We know that our struggles now, they will hurt. One day they will be swallowed up. Are you sure? Can you be certain of that? Well, God is kind, isn't he? Because he guarantees it with the gift of the Spirit in our hearts, which we can see at work day by day. So what does a Christian life look like? It, lives, it is living now with groans, longing for glory to come. But also, as we see, second point on our passage there, looking at verse 6 to 7, it is living now with confidence and commitment. The eternity set before him made Paul confident. Confident, isn't that interesting? Confident in the present. Because his future, you see, was in God's hands. Look at verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. You see, to be at home in the body as we are now means we cannot see God. He is not accessible to our sight, is he? We can't, oh, there's God. No, he's not accessible to our sight. As he will be one day when we're in glory. For Christians today, God is accessible by faith alone. We live by faith and therefore not by sight. But that does not diminish our confidence for future glory. What we see and experience in life now may be hard. Life now, as we share our faith with those we meet, will kick up all sorts of difficulties. Afflictions and trials as we've seen. But Paul's call here is to say, we must live by faith. Christians, we put our faith in God who has prepared for us a heavenly home. Given us his spirit as a guarantee of our mansion in glory, as my favourite hymn says. And do you see, therefore, why Paul is confident? He isn't confident in himself. He's confident because he, he lives putting every step of his life in God's hands. He lives by faith every moment. And not by sight. If he lived by sight, he'd be just going, oh, this is rubbish. This is terrible. This is, look at what else is happening. No, no, no. He lives by faith. Trusting in the promises of God and the future glory that awaits him. Again, Paul is confident in verse 8. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He longs, doesn't he? Sounds like a broken record, but he keeps longing to be with the Lord at home. Third little image. Firstly, building. Secondly, clothing. Now, home. It's wonderful, isn't it? It, it? it reeks of kind of intimacy with God, doesn't it? When you think of home, what is the idyllic image that con- you conjure up in your minds? What does home mean to you? Curled up in front of the log fire, hot chocolate in hand. Probably watching some Netflix series or something like that. Well, you know, what's, what's home? What, what, what makes home for you? Playing board games without arguing. I mean, that, that would be good, wouldn't it? I mean, you know, what's home for you? Paul wants to be home, home with the Lord. This follows on from the previous 
verses. He's confident because he knows the guarantee of the Spirit in his heart. He lives by faith and not by sight. So he's utterly confident and would prefer to be at home. He wanted so much to be in glory because it's, as he says in another letter, it's better by far. He wasn't looking to die, nor was he living for his retirement. A chance to get a bit more leisure, a bit of travel time, play golf every day. That's just me, maybe. Rather, with the time he had in his body, in that tent he has now, he lives with confidence, knowing his home was secure, waiting for him in glory. And therefore, how does that translate? He lives with this devoted confidence, but also commitment, as we see. Look at verse 9. So we make it our goal to please him whether we're at home in the body or away from it. I don't know if you're a dog lover. I don't know if you've got many dog lovers here. I am not a dog lover at all, but I'll run with this illustration for a moment, just for the sake of others. Dogs seem to love to please their masters. You know, you throw a ball. There's nothing more exciting to a dog, is there? Than going, I'm going to go get that ball and bring it back to my master. That's just a wonderful thing for the dog to do. I mean, you can throw a ball all day. How dumb is this animal? And you go, yeah, I'm going to bring the ball back to the master. It's fantastic. That's all I want to do is bring a ball back and go, yes. That's why I don't like dogs very much. But there we go. (laughs) Nothing pleases a dog more than pleasing its master. I wonder how much more that should be true for us. If God is your Lord, that is your master of your life through his word and by his spirit. And if he is secured through his son and uh, and prepared a heavenly home for you, I, I wonder how much more true that should be for us. Do you make it your goal to please him? Is your life devoted to your master, your loving Lord? See, Paul is utterly devoted, committed in his life to love and serve his Lord and Master. How many days he has left, he's not sure. They will be lived for Jesus. Why? Well, look at verse 10. The last warning comes here. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Paul's point here is clear. One day we will all meet Jesus face to face. As he sits on his judgment seats that he has been resurrected for. The same word used here for judgment seat is the same, if you like, judgment seat that Pilate sat on as he handed Jesus over to be crucified. Jesus sat before that judgment seat in the sense so that we did not have to. And Paul is not saying here that his committed life will merit him any eternal glory. Rather, he's saying that what we do whilst we're in this fragile temporary body will determine the weight of glory, the eternal reward we will receive. Jesus will judge our lives and reward us justly in heaven. How faithfully have we used our time How faithfully have we used our money, our bodies, our minds? How single-minded have we been to serve Jesus and to make him known? We are justified, made ready for eternal glory in Christ alone. We must be clear on that. We are saved for heaven, not by good works, but for good works. 
This was Paul's priority and goal in life. I have to ask, is it mine? Is it yours? The implication for Paul was clear. Look at, look at the following uh, verse. Uh, we're not going to look at this. It, this is next week, but look at it. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. I wonder, when was the last time you tried to persuade anyone of the eternal glory that awaits those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus? Why don't you try and persuade anyone? Let me finish with this. When Spain uh, controlled both sides of the Mediterranean many years ago, centuries ago, at the Straits of Gibraltar, they ruled both the, uh, the northern and the southern uh, rocky outcrops. They are known as the um, Pillars of Hercules. Many of you know that if you study geography. Uh, at that point, though, the Spain had their coins. And on the coins, they displayed with great pride these two rocky outcrops, the Pillars of Hercules. And the inscription between those two little pillars on their coins was this. It was in Latin... It was knee plus ultra. And that simply meant no more beyond. Because they thought those two rocky outcrops, either side of the Straits of Gibraltar, uh, the Pillars of Hercules, uh, were the end of the known world. They thought nothing would lay beyond. They just thought it was water until it kind of fell off the end of the earth. And then we know, don't we, historically, that in 1492, someone sailed the ocean blue and his name was Columbus. And he came back and he discovered, oh, this is a whole, there's a bunch of other stuff across there. It's the new world. And he came back with various things and it was all exciting and a whole new world economy started. Wow, you know, this very proud nation, the Spanish at that point, admitted its ignorance and took from their coins one word. Previously, between the pillars of Hercules, the, the, the little phrase was need plus ultra, and they just changed it to plus ultra. More beyond. Their discovery transformed the world, you see. It was a revolution in world culture and the beginning of the global economy that we now live in today. No less revolutionary discovery is needed today in our country. I'm not talking geographically, but I'm talking spiritually. We live in a culture, in a sense, that is inscribed in their hearts, knee plus ultra, that there is no more beyond. And if that is you today, please endeavour... To discover and explore a new world. An eternal glory that God is preparing for those who live by faith and not by sight. And if you're a Christian here today, let's be thankful to God that he has worked in our lives to reveal there is a plus ultra. That there is more beyond. Let us live now by faith and not by sight. Groaning with anticipation, excited Longing for that glory to come. Making it our goal to please the one who has prepared for us our eternal heavenly home. My friends, let's live by faith for the plus ultra, the more beyond. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, please forgive us when we are consumed by life now. 
that our thinking goes nothing beyond the, the days and the weeks and the years to come. Help us, as Paul says, to fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen. We have seen what that is today in its glory and its majesty. The eternal weightiness of glory to come. That eternal building where we'll be clothed perfectly and be at home with the Lord, with you, our King. Lord, we long for that day. Help us grow with eager anticipation. But in the days to come, help us to live by faith and not by sight, I pray. Amen.